All right, so um, the title of this morning's message, as you'll see on the screen, is When Hurtful Words Come, because in life, hurtful words do come. And they come from all angles. Sometimes they come from the most unexpected of sources. And uh, they hurt. They do. They hurt. And one of the things that um, charity campaigners have been doing as, as regarding the kind of social media world that we live in is trying to make people aware that, that words hurt. So I want to show you this little video quickly. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words... I don't know if you remember that. That was a little advert campaign that, that went out a few years ago. And it's with the concept because, you know, um, those of, that are my age and probably older, we grew up in a, in a generation where it was sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. And that was the, that was the motto, you know, don't worry about words. They don't hurt, you know. And, and, and the truth is, words do hurt. They do hurt. And, and sometimes words hurt more than actually physical pain. Uh, they can be more deep-rooted and long-lasting and more damaging. And I'm sure this morning, even as we've just spoken about this subject, which is a very emotive subject, um, has maybe touched somebody here and brought you back to a time and a place when you were on the end of some hurtful words, where you'd faced criticism or you'd faced uh, untruths told about you, slander uh, against you, and, and that hurt and that had an effect upon us when you were misrepresented for what you said or what you did and, 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 and you know, you're tarred with this brush and, and there's just deep hurt in there. And I'm sure many of us have been on, on the end of that. I've been on the end of that as a, as a pastor. <laughs> Definitely as a pastor, but even before I became a pastor, you know, and I started off in, in ministry, and I was doing like itinerant preaching, so I was going around to different churches uh, and, 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 and preaching in, in the area. This is when I was here at Milton, before I had accepted the call to, to the pastorate and to go into ministry proper. I was just, you know, being a layman and preaching. And one, one service I went out to, and I went, and I'd been to this church before, and, you know, lovely group of people, and, and I had no problems. But I was down, and I was preaching, and I preached in the morning service, and uh, then there, in the evening service, there was a guy there who wasn't an evening service attender, who didn't come to the evening services, but he was there for this evening service. And he was very, you know, when you're preaching and, and you know, uh, your mind takes snapshots of the faces that you see, okay? So all your faces, even though I'm preaching... My mind's clocking them, okay? So I can see the disinterested faces. I can see the interested faces. I can see the faces that are falling asleep. I can see the faces that are saying, what's this guy talking about? I can see the faces that are saying, oh, this pastor's brilliant. I can see the faces that are saying, oh, this pastor's a shambles. I can, we, we see all that. We see all that. So I'm preaching, and I'm, I'm, only, I'm only in the, you know, just not even in the ministry. In early days, early days on the path that would lead eventually to the pastoral call. And so this guy came back to the evening service, and you could tell he was on a mission. Not to hear the message, but he was just focused, laser-focused in on me, um, sitting, just staring at me, 
and uh, no reaction to the word of God being preached. And uh, what transpired was at the end of the service, after everybody had cleared out, he then cornered me and started to, to, to berate me and tell me that I was preaching a false gospel and the message that I was preaching was um, not compatible with the message that, that the Lord had. And he had basically came to the evening service with the intention of just grabbing and reprimanding me over my preaching and started fire all these accusations and slander, slanderous words and say that I was preaching a false gospel, a false Christ, that uh, my message was legalistic and, and we are not to be um, put into a place where, where we're to be accountable under the word of God. And actually the Lord speaks to us all individually and we can be perfect, we can be sinlessly perfect. Now, this guy is no longer in church anymore. He was a crank, he was a crack. He had the false message, not me. But, but, that's early doors for me. That's early doors in my ministry. And I'm, you know, I expected to be preaching to friends. And then I have this guy who comes to the service with the sole intention of just getting me in a corner at the end and hammering me with all his faulty theology and throwing these accusations and labels at me. And those words hurt. And that could have had a huge impact on my ministry. I could have listened to those words and I could have took those words to heart and said, maybe I'm not for this. And, and not, maybe not be standing here today in this pulpit. Words do hurt. They do have an effect. And, you know, that was a discouraging time for me. And when I look back on it now, and as a pastor now, if somebody comes and, and has that for me, it's a lot easier to deal with it because my call is in the Lord, my sureness is in Him, and my message comes from the Word of God. So if he wants, anybody wants to argue with that, get the Bible out and we'll go for it, no problem. But then it was a different story. And again, just at the beginning of my preaching ministry, I could have been discouraged. And, and if we looked, remember if we looked last week, we looked at the weapons of the enemy's warfare and how that you know, irritation and discouragement was one of those weapons. Well, oftentimes that irritation and that discouragement comes through words. Words. Words can be hurtful. And when we get into Ezra chapter number 4, we're going to see a series of letters that are sent to the, 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 the rulers about the remnant that are trying to rebuild the temple. And they're wrong words, they're slanderous words, and ultimately hurtful words. And, and as we live our lives today, fast forward, it's no different. We will receive hurtful words as individuals or as a body, as a church. People will write things about us, say things about us that are untruths. What are we to do? Well, we'll see as we go through, but... I want to take us, and we'll pick up now in verse number 6 of Ezra chapter 4. We're going to see that these hurtful words come. But what I want to outline quickly before we start is that Ezra chapter number 4, verse 6 to 23, are really a kind of uh, proleptic or par paralytic, par uh, <laughs> what's the word, uh, parathetical? <laughs> yes, but there's a plural for it. Parenthetical, right, that's, that'll do. You know what I mean, don't you? No. You don't know what a parenthesis is? Okay. It's a section that takes us out of the narrative in the chronological order, okay? Are we ready? You ready, Claire? Okay, no problem. Always the pastor's wife that gives her trouble. Always the pastor's wife. So, if we read verse 5, 
it says, this is where we left off last time. Here's a four. It says, And hired counselors against them to frustrate the purpose, their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even unto the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That's where we left off last time. Now we get to verse six, and it says, In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, if you go to verse seven, it says, In the days of Artaxerxes, wrote Bilshan. If you go to verse uh, 23, it says, Now when the copy of Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum. And then verse 24, we're back to Darius. Then ceased the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So it ceased unto the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, this section, and I'm going to show you this just from the historical timeline. It's just important to clear this up. Um, but it, it, it really highlights the battles that are fought by the people throughout the, the time of these kings in their reign and the political battles that were fought as they went about trying to rebuild the, not just the temple but the city walls and the city of Jerusalem. And they fought battles that weren't just physical, they were political and oftentimes political battles are battles of words. You can see that region at the minute between um, uh, Russia and uh, you know the U.S. particularly, it's 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 battles of words. This and that. He said that back and forward. And this is what happens in in the time of this returning remnant, where people get involved. They try to bog down the work. So these verses, we step out of the chronology of the narrative of first five, and we pick up with these different kings. Because the reason I say we step out of the of the chronology is. Um, because if you can see on my little amazing timeline there, so this is the, these are the kings of, of Persia. So if you uh, have taken heed to what I've said, is that when we get to verse 5 of Ezra 4, we're dealing with from King Cyrus, king of Persia, to Darius, king of Persia. Okay, so that takes us from Cyrus to Darius. Um, don't really worry, somebody ruled for seven months. That wasn't a successful reign. Then um, Darius came in. Then I said to you that in verse 7, we pick up with Artaxerxes and uh, Ahasuerus, or sorry, uh, Ahasuerus in verse 6, and then Artaxerxes in verse 7. And then when we get to verse 24, we're back to Darius. The problem is, if we run that in chronological order, I know your minds are spinning here, but if you run that in chronological order, what's the problem? The problem is that Artaxerxes rules 25 year, or 20 years after the death of Darius. Okay? So, what's going on? You know, it, it can't be chronological order. If it's chronological order, then the word of God has fault in it. Now, I absolutely believe and stand upon the principle that God's word is inerrant. I have to. You have to do that. For God to be God. His word is inerrant. It's infallible. And, and oftentimes when we get to places like this. Where people want to say oh there's contradictions in the Bible. And pull that up. Generally what happens is at face value it may seem like there's a contradiction. But when you do a little bit of study as we're exhorted to do. As the people of the book. Um, you'll find that there are no contradictions. In the word of God. There are things that complement. Things that show from a different angle. Little bits to take us out of the narrative. And add some little detail in. 
And uh, it all becomes pretty clear. And what we see here is that Ezra, who's the scribe, who has access to all the records, is really taking us out of the immediate point, and he's taking us and filling us into the narrative of all these kings, all the way through the kings of Persia, to highlight the point that the work of, of, of unsteady in the work of the people, the work of sending slanderous words and um, using the weapons of the enemy's warfare to try and stop the work, continued and didn't just stop at Darius. It continued through all the other kings. The other aspect, when we look at the section between verse 6 and verse 23, it deals with the rebuilding of the walls. And that's a, a much later narrative. We're going to see that uh, later on in the book. That's when Nehemiah comes in. That's a bit later on in the book. So when we look at it this way, there's no problem. From verse 6 to 23, as Ezra steps out, and he just gives a little chronological um, a review of this period from after Darius and Artaxerxes, and then he goes back into verse 24 brings us back to the reign of Darius. But these words are in Scripture. So even though it's a little section out of the timeline between Cyrus and Darius, even though it's taken us out and fast-forwarding us a little bit, it's there under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. Amen? So there's something in there. So we have to look at it. We don't discount it. We don't go past it. We have a look at it and we... Um, have a look and see what the Lord has for us. And what this section details for us is a series of letters that are written to these various Persian rulers um, to try and disrupt the work that is going on in Jerusalem. And as we look at these four letters, we're going to uh, see how it tries to bog the people down in bureaucracy and red tape and just bring the work to a halt. That's the design of it. Because where the work of God begins, the opposition of the enemy starts. That's the two things. Expect that. Expect that. So let's examine these letters briefly this morning. We're going to draw some application for us today as the battles we face uh, as believers. So the first letter we see in verse number 6 of Ezra 4. This is in the reign of Azarus. In the beginning of his reign... Wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So this first letter is, is written to Azarus. This is also known as Xerxes. If you've uh, seen the movie 300, um, this is the king, the Persian king, that comes and attacks. This is uh, Xerxes. And uh, we're going to see a little bit of him uh, later on in, in our uh, narrative. But... At this point, excuse me, the remnant, returning remnant, had been in the land for about 50 years. So at, at this point in the story, they've been in land for 50 years. The contents of the letter are not given to you. But the intention of the letter is clearly stated. Look at verse 6 there. It says, uh, in the beginning of his reign, wrote they unto him an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So straight away we know, even though we don't know the content of the letter, we know the character of the letter. It's an accusation against the remnant who are building the temple and the city and the walls 
in Jerusalem. And that word accusation, a connecting word to that, is, is Satan, uh, our enemy, the accuser. Uh, Revelation 12, verse 9 and 10 tells us this about our great enemy. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth as the angels were cast with him. And they heard a loud voice and saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. That's our great enemy. He's an accuser. And he will throw accusation out there. And he does that. And thanks be to God, we have one seated at the right hand of the Father, whoever lives to make intercession for us. You know, one of the most heartbreaking things, I think, personally, about the accusations that are made is oftentimes they're they're not really falsehoods, they're truths. And if you think about that, you think about our Lord Jesus Christ as he stands there ever living to make intercession for us. And the enemy, the accuser, as we're told here, has access to the courts of heaven and and he stands day and night accusing the beloved before God. But I don't think he's telling that many lies. Do you know why? I don't think he needs to. I don't think he needs to. And that's the heartbreaking thing. That the enemy can look upon God's people and say, see what he just did? See what she just did? See the way she acted? The way she behaved? The way he behaved? The actions, the deeds. Doesn't need to go too far to find dirt on us, does he? We give the enemy so much ammunition. All of us. From pulpit to the pew. But praise be to God. There's one that stands and ever lives to make intercession for us. And he says, that child's mine. Mine. The enemy is an accuser. And the letter that's written to the people of Jerusalem is an accusation and it's against them. So there's an intent, there's a motive, and the motive is to stop the work. So we get the idea of the letter. There's nothing good in the first letter. The second letter is found in verse 7 of Ezra 4. It says, In the days of Artaxerxes, wrote Bilshem, Mithridath, Tabil and the rest of their companions unto Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the writing of the letter was written in the Syrian tongue and interpreted in the Syrian tongue. So this letter is addressed to Artaxerxes. It's sent roughly about 10 years later. Um, no, t- no details given. But again, we can just make some assumptions and we can assume that the letter is in the same type of vein and context as the, the last, because we are dealing with the enemies of God. Remember, we looked at that last week. The, the people around about, they are enemies, they are adversaries, they are foes, and they are trying to stop the work of God. And although we're not told exactly what's written, we can make a fair guess that that's what the letter is about. We're told that it's written in the Syrian tongue, in Aramaic, which was the common language of the time. So that's the second letter. The third letter is found in verses 8 to 16. We'll read verse 8 just. It says, Rahim the Chancellor and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem. So again, that's that word against. To Artaxerxes the king 
in this sword. So this, this letter, it's written by Rehum and Shimshai, and it's sent to uh, uh, Artaxerxes. There are others that are involved in this letter. You can see them there in verses 9 and 10. It says, Then wrote Rehum the chancellor, Shimshai described the rest of their companions, Denonites. Uh, ooh, that's a word. The <laughs> that's whoever they are. The Tarpalites, the Aphrosites, the Archivites, the Babylonians, the Susanites, the Deovites, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Asenapur brought over and set in the cities of Samaria and the rest of them on the side of the river at such a time. So what we deduce from that is there is an unholy alliance against the people of God. That people that are uh, common enemies probably have come together to put their names and their weight and their force behind this letter that is an accusation against God's people. And God will do that. He will unify enemies. We've seen that in the life of Christ. That those that were enemies came together. The, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians, they all came together with the common enemy of Christ. And we will see a world that will rally round and come as common together against the Lord Jesus Christ. It's happened then, it'll happen now. And that's what's going on in this third letter. They come together, people from all places, all over the place, and come together and reel against Jerusalem. And notice it's against Jerusalem. And when it's against Jerusalem, it's against the place where God placed his name. It's against God. Any attack upon Jerusalem is attack upon God. It's his land. It's the place where he put his name. And these people are against it and therefore they're against God. And this letter is littered with false and unproven accusations. Let's look at verse 12. Ezra 4, we get a little bit more of the detail in this letter and it's, it's, it's full of false things that look a little bit true but are false. Slander. Verse 12, Be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are come unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and bad city and have set up the walls thereof and joined the foundations. Be it known now unto the king that if this city be builded and the walls set up again, then will they not pay toll, tribute, and custom, and so shall thou endain and damage the revenue of the king. So you can see this letter, letter is political. It's sent unto the king to make him think, you know, if, if these people get their city and get their temple, they're going to be a thorn in your side. They're, they're, they're going to be, uh, uh, they're not going to pay their customs. They're not going to pay their dues. They're, they're going to be trouble. Don't let them do it. Stop it at any cost or you will pay, pay the toll. Verse 15. That search may be made in the book of the records of thy father, so they shall find in the book of the records, and know that this city is a rebellious city, and hurtful unto kings and provinces, and that they have moved sedition within the same old time for which cause this city was destroyed. It's a lie. It's not true. But that's what they're using. They're using words that are false, slanderous. 
to try and move the king. So we see these many tools of the devil that are used here uh, against the people of God. Lies, exaggerations, false assumptions, predictions. You know, if you let these people uh, live, if you let these people have their city, then they're going to do this. Who were they to say that? Who were they to say that? It's the work of the enemy against the work of God to bring it down to stop it in its tracks. And the enemy will use any tool he can to do that. And as I've said at the start, words can be powerful. They can be hurtful and they can be harmful. And these three letters that we've seen contain hurtful words. There's one final letter to look at. Verse 17. This letter's a little different. This is uh, the reply of Artaxerxes. And um, we find that a search of the records has been made and the search of the records made and the conclusion that they've come to is that the Jews are troubled. Look at verse 20. There have been mighty kings also over Jerusalem which have ruled over all countries beyond the river and toil and tribute and custom was paid unto them. Give you now commandment to cause these men to cease. So notice the king has looked The records have been searched. And verse 20 is the conclusion. The conclusion states that these people have been mighty kings over Jerusalem and they've ruled over all countries beyond the river and toil and tribute and custom was paid unto them. And because of that, we're not going to allow them to build the temple because this will happen again. Therefore, the work has to cease. But this was slanderous. It was lies. The people of Jerusalem had never occupied lands beyond the river. Never. And God had never given them lands beyond the river. The river in question is the Euphrates. When you look in Genesis, you will see, as part of the Abrahamic covenant, which comes out of it, the land covenant, the promise to God's people, Israel, is that they would possess the land from the Nile to the Euphrates. When you look at the history of the kings of Israel, you'll find that they kept within those boundaries. They never fully had that land in its fullness. That is yet to come. So these accusations that they had ruled, and they had ruled beyond the river, were lies. Look at 1 Kings. Turn to 1 Kings chapter number 4, verse 21. And we would say that Solomon's reign was the most prosperous, probably, of all the kings. Certainly the borders were enlarged. 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 21. Notice what it says. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river onto the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And that sets the boundaries. You can look at it in its context. No further than the Euphrates. So this had never happened. But because of this slander, because of these words that have been sent out, the king has gone about and he has come to the conclusion that he wants to come to. You know, no doubt every world empire is guilty of revisionist history. All of every world empire. They write history as they see it from their side. 
And as the Persians had seen and others before, the Jews were trouble. And they'd written them in that way. But it was lies. It wasn't true. It wasn't correct. But even so, the word stuck. The king was moved. Verse 21, give the commandment to cause these men to cease. That is, this city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. Verse 24, then cease the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. So the enemy had succeeded. The words had done their work. These letters that had contained hurtful words. Words that were untrue, words that were false, words that were slanderous, words that were designed with one intention to bring the work of God to a halt and to a stop had had the effect that they had desired them to have. Hurtful words had came and hurtful words had had a success because words can be powerful. Words can be powerful. These letters designed to put the political pressure on, to put the squeeze on to the rulers, to try and push the Jews into a corner where they were stereotyped and identified as troublemakers. That's a tactic that the enemy has used throughout the generation. That's a tactic the enemy used in the Holocaust. It's a tactic the enemy has used throughout. You know, push the Jews to one side. Uh, look at them, they're troublemakers. If they get any hold or power or anything, they're going to cause trouble. We need to put them down. And the king has bowed to the pressure. And the work of these hurtful words has been done, discouraging, breaking the spirits of the people nearby. And the work has stopped. Proverbs 15 verse 4 tells us a wholesome tongue is a tree of life but perversiveness in it breaks the spirit. Words hurt, especially words that are untrue and especially written words, especially words that are written down and sent, more so than than verbal. Why did I say that? Well, you know, for those those of us that are married, um, know that there are times <laughs> is there a confession Josh? no no. Josh is agreeing he knows what I'm going to say there are times when you, when you say things in the heat of the moment that you don't mean right? right? yes? We, is it just me? me and Josh okay okay we're the bad husbands <laughs> But there are times when, you know, in the heat of in any type of argument or any type of raised tension, you can say things and, and it can come out and then, you know, it takes a, a while to, to reel it back and you, you don't mean it. But a letter, a letter's different. A letter's more premeditated. A letter's more thoughtful. A letter is something... When it's, it's, it's read, and this goes both ways, you know, if you receive a, a letter that's positive, you know, it, it's lovely, isn't it? But I know people that have received letters, I know pastors that have received letters, anonymously written, that have contained horrible words, hurtful words. And, and, and it's been more hurtful than it would be that if that pastor was opposed and verbally attacked. 
because there's a lot of thought and intent behind somebody that takes time to write a letter. And maybe you've had this. You know, I, I know people have had this in their work as well, where letters have been wrote about them. And, and it's hurtful, and it's harmful. And, and these letters that were sent you know, must have been hurtful to those that heard about what was written in it because they were untrue and it was false. And maybe if you've had a letter written about you, it's hurtful to read those words that somebody has said and, and, and those words have been distributed maybe amongst many other believers to read about you and there's untruths in them and, and it's hurting your soul. What are we to do when hurtful words come? Because they may have already come. They may be coming. Even as a church body, we have to think about the political pressure that may come upon us. I know, I know um, pastors that I've read about, you know, over various things have took a biblical stand on certain things and they've been attacked left, right and centre, have all sorts written about them in the media, may be us it may be us I hope not but it may be maybe maybe it's you in your own life you've had this experience either by written or verbal where you've been attacked your character's been attacked uh, your God's been attacked um, everything about you's been attacked and you've had these hurtful words what are you to do what are you to do either as church or as an individual what are we to do when hurtful words come? Well, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14, as we close off this morning. We're going to turn to the greatest king of the southern kingdom of Judah, Hezekiah. 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 14. Hezekiah, when he receives this blasphemous letter from Sennacherib, I want you to see what he does. Because that's what we're to do when hurtful words come. 2 Kings chapter 19 verse 14. The word of God says this. And Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. Notice what he does. And Hezekiah went up into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. What did he do? Immediately when he read those hurtful words, he took it straight to the Lord and spread it before him. And I love that use of the language. He literally laid it out before him. He spread it out before him. Because when hurtful words come, we're to take it to the Lord straight away. Take it to the Lord. He's our strength. He's our refuge. He's our high tower. And that's what Hezekiah did. That's the example he sets. He could have you know, got all his other counselors around him. He could have got all these human opinions around him. And he could have started to say, isn't this outrageous? Look at this. And then he would have got the response, yes, this is outrageous. How dare they do that? What are we going to do in response? Let's send a hurtful letter back. Let's do this or let's do that and get a wisdom of human counsel. That is the wrong way to do it. It's the wrong order. Godly counsel from a human perspective is to be sought, absolutely. But first and foremost, when hurtful words come, we don't dwell on them. We don't gossip about them. We take them to the Lord 
and spread it about, spread it out before him because he's our strength, he's our refuge, he is the one that we're to go to. Let's close with Psalm 121. Turn there with me, please. Psalm 121. See, we make a mistake so often of running to the flesh when hurtful words come. When difficulties come, when distractions come, when when the situations in life explode, we always run to the things that we know or we think can make a difference. And that's ourselves, our friend network, our counsellors, whoever it may be. But we are to run to the Lord. So when we read these verses together and when we see what the Lord says to us, we're to be like Hezekiah. We're to go straight to the house of God. We're going to straight before our Lord, before the throne of grace. When the hurt of this world comes, and it will come, take it to the Lord healer of all hurt. Psalm 121, verse 1. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence or where comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. When hurtful words come, we go to our hearing God, the creator of heaven and earth, and we lay it out before him, and we seek his counsel, and we seek his guidance. And we ask, what would the Lord have us do? Not what would we do in and of ourselves. What would the fleshly response be? But what would the Lord have us do when hurtful words come? Let's pray.